How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 256 of X-Lapsed. And uh, this is my first time recording into um, Audacity 3 point something. Um, I guess I've been on a very old version of Audacity. I just found out, as of this recording, I just found out yesterday that I was quite behind the times in as far as my uh, Audacity status. So here we are, 3.0.3, I think. So uh, hopefully this sounds... uh, Well, I guess hopefully it sounds just the same as the previous several hundred episodes Because, uh, yeah, I don't want those to sound worse than this But I suppose uh, we'll have to wait and see So you guys let me know how this this sounds If it sounds any different, if it sounds better, worse, the same Just let me know Also, uh, this is being recorded a little bit early Because uh, this weekend uh, the wife and I went out of town So by the time you're hearing this, hopefully, hopefully I'm back home after a trip to Minneapolis and um, and maybe some visits to some uh, foreign to me comic book shops, it's always so exciting when you have the uh, potential of visiting a store you've never been to before, especially if it's in like a whole other city and state. It's I don't know, you get your hopes up. And I'm sitting here now a few days before, and I'm like, oh, I hope I can find that one book. You know, uh, there's one book, a recent book that I can't find anywhere in town. It's I mean, it's not like it's an important book, but it's important for me as a completionist. I'm looking for X-Men Black Magneto, and I can't find the damn thing anywhere in town. It's the last of the color books that I need to uh, to complete my collection from when I had my... Uh, I threw my little temper tantrum a few years back and went running for the hills. So, fingers crossed, as you're listening to this, I've got it in my hot little hands. Hopefully some uh, other interesting goodies as well, but uh, I guess I'll have to let you know next time, huh? Now, it might sound like I'm vamping, and uh, yeah, I kind of am, because, uh, well, it's Unlimited Day, which is to say there isn't a whole heck of a lot to say. Um, You know, this is the fourth issue of X-Men Unlimited here, and one of the primary things we talk about when we cover an issue of the uh, Infinity Comics is their over-reliance on the scrolling gimmick. And boy, does this one have it in spades. Um, It feels like you do more scrolling than reading in this one, so... uh, yeah, not a whole heck of a lot to say, but, uh, you know, I should probably get right into it, huh? Okie dokie, so this is X-Men Unlimited, Volume 3, Number 4. We're gonna say it has a September 2021 cover date, despite the fact that it has no cover. Uh, written by Jonathan Hickman, with art by Declan Shalvey. Letters, VCs, Josephino, edits, B. So White Sabolsky, appeared on the app September 19th of 2021. Now, we pick up our story with our heroes arriving in Antarctica to rescue one of the two remaining missing mutants. Nightcrawler bamfs them below ground to a secret aim bunker where... Alright, like I said, what's the watchword when it comes to this brand of X-Men Unlimited? It is, of course, scrolling. 
So, uh, you know, they bamf in, and uh, they're on the edge of a platform of some sort, and Wolverine winds up falling off said platform. And it's quite a fall. So we follow him down for around seven seconds worth of scrolling. Nightcrawler does bamf him to safety before he can go splat, even though, I mean, he is Wolverine, and he probably wouldn't have even felt the fall. Anyway, the pair arrive outside a closed-off room. Nightcrawler wonders if they should enter, however, after engaging his sniffer, Logan is able to deduce that there are scads of beekeepers lurking on the other side of the door, all with their lasers, cannons, bazookas, and pea shooters at the ready. And so Wolverine suggests that maybe they just go around. And so they bamf around into the beekeeper bathroom, where, ho, 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 there's a baddie sitting on the toilet. Ha-ha, humor, comedy, oh boy. Uh, Wolverine pops his clothes, threatening to carve the hell out of this poor pooper. We jump ahead five minutes, and our heroes are battling more beekeepers. Now, it is worth noting here that Wolverine has his claws out the entire time, and he is just slicing and stabbing the hell out of anything that moves. So our man uh, ain't, ain't afraid of the hole. He's not afraid of the hole, huh? So they continue. Oh, and we do pop back over to the turlet, where the poor pooper now has his head completely in the commode. We're not sure if he's dead or not, but, uh, I mean, he'd probably like to be if he's not. It's He's not moving. We don't see any movement, but, uh, again, it is a static image, so who can say? Anyway, we go down another level, and more beekeepers arrive. Wolverine tells Nightcrawler to go on ahead while he deals with the grunts, and I tell you what, there is a lot of blood here. I mean, he is, like, stabbing through people's backs, you gotta assume this is a official X-Force business, right? Uh, otherwise, we would have to cancel the X-Lives and X-Deaths of Wolverine and replace it with the X-Trials of Wolverine because he killing fools. It, there's no way he's not. It would take a John Byrne Hulk-sized uh, revelation here to tell us that he's not killing people. Anyway, Nightcrawler bamfs over to the hibernation capsule, opens it, and discovers that the second kidnapped mutant is... Chamber. And about four seconds of scrolling later, as we follow the energy blast he unleashes from his missing maw upon being freed, I mean, we're rolling and rolling this thing, this actually barbecues all of the beekeepers and Wolverine. Which, well, I now hope that the beekeepers were already dead, because Jono does not have the X-Force loophole to fall back on, does he? Yeah, who knows, maybe he'll be deputized, I don't know. But uh, anyway... Logan has Nightcrawler bamf the three of them to the next base, which, if I'm remembering right, is in New Zealand. Then, after scrolling a few more seconds on a completely black screen, we get an epilogue. Ooh, I feel like a moviegoer here. This is like a post-credit sequence. Look at look at me. Look at me. Uh, anyway, the trio makes it to New Zealand. Okay, cool. So I did remember that, right? Only they find that the base has already been evacuated. So you see, AIM still has that third missing mutant. But we're none the wiser as to what their plans are. Now we do get a sorta kinda look at that final capsule, and uh, it appears to be a woman in there with longish hair and bangs, but that's really all I can make out under the hibernation glass. Uh, Your guess is as good as mine. Now we wrap up with the assurance that Wolverine will not rest until he rescues them. So this story will continue. Just not next issue, because next issue is Jerry Duggan's X-Men Green. Now, I'm assuming we'll actually have things to say about X-Men Green when it happens here. Unfortunately, there isn't much to say about this story, which almost makes me feel like I'm half-assing this, and I feel bad about that. I feel like 
if I can't come up with something to say uh, of an analytical bent or just anything, I, I feel like I'm uh, copping out here. That said, there's really only so much I can say about a story that in and of itself feels kind of like an afterthought. Uh, the art here is is great. I mean, Declan Shalvey is great, but there really isn't much story here. This feels like uh, like just trying to get ahead of things, like like something you'd write on your lunch break. Because honestly, these four issues that we've covered so far could have just been like four, you know, Sunday comic-style strips. You know, there's not a whole heck of a lot here. I don't sense any passion behind this story. I also don't sense any interest behind it. It's just, uh, it's just here. And no, it's not bad. It's just, uh, I don't know, like a non-event, I guess. Not that everything has to be an event, but, uh, I don't know. Just, uh, feels, feels half-hearted, unfortunately. Uh, I do think it's smart not to burn through all the Hickman stuff right away. You know, promising that this will eventually come back. I think that's smart. I, I think that's a good thing here because, uh, we know that Hickman will be leaving following Inferno. So if he gets some stories in the can here that Marvel can put out every few months on Unlimited, I think that could only help, right? I think that's a good idea. Even if it's, you know, kind of half-hearted like, like this feels, it's still, he's got name recognition. It's nice to have him still entangled in the X-Universe. Uh, that said, I hope his future installments are a little bit less reliant on the scrolling gimmick here. I mean, I get it as a novelty. I get it as uh, trying to see the potential of this new format, uh, this slightly different you know, dialect of the comics language here. I think there's certainly potential here, but I'm not going to lie to you. I think I might be over the scrolling gimmick. I, I think it's time to maybe try to find a more happy medium between the scrolling gimmick and the sequential art where it isn't so reliant on the scroll. Because, I mean, as an outsider looking in here, I see the scrolling as making this look longer than it really is. You know, making it feel like a beefier offering, where it can, you know, almost trick you into thinking you're getting more content than you actually are. And, I mean, that might be a uh, an entitled <laughs> observation or complaint, considering that, at least for now, we're getting these for free if we're already subscribed to Marvel Unlimited, so... Lest I come across as a choosy beggar, I think uh, I should probably quit complaining about that for now. Um, like I say every week, if you are already subscribed to Marvel Unlimited, there's no reason not to check this out. If you're not currently subscribed to Marvel Unlimited, I'm not sure that this would be the thing to push you over the line to, uh, to sub. But maybe there is an Infinity comic in this line that uh, I would tell you to subscribe for. Well, I mean, I, I say so... Somewhat earnestly, but at the same time, I mean, I am talking about Jeff the Landshark now. Um, now, Jeff, it's Jeff is a fun, fun strip here. Unfortunately, it is a blink-and-you'll-miss-it type of strip as well here. It's a very, very quick—I don't even know if we can call it a read since there are no words in it, but I have so much fun with it. Um, I don't know that there are any free samples of this up on the site, but if there are, please check them out. Please check them out. I think it's certainly worth the, I mean, 30 seconds it'll take for you to go through it here. Let's hop into uh, It's Jeff Issue 4. Now, we're going to say that this has a September 2021 cover date. Uh, the story's called Captain of Fun, written by Kelly Thompson with art by Gurahiru. Edits Pile Go Wacker Sobalski appeared on the app September the 16th of 2021. Now, we start with our tiny hero, and he's decided to go sledding with some friends. Now, we don't get a roll call page, but I'll introduce them anyway. 
First, we've got Squirrel Girl, who uh, is thankfully not drawn as she's drawn in her own series. Uh, is that even still a thing that exists, or are we over that for now? Um, I don't know. Well, uh, she's got a squirrel with her. I'm not sure if this squirrel has a name or not. Also, we have Ms. Marvel, Miles Morales, and Hulkling in Wiccan. Now, I should probably tell you all what they're equipped with, too, right? Uh, since that kind of is the crux of this story. Now, Squirrel Girl has an old-fashioned sled. Ms. Marvel has a little more of a modern version of an old-fashioned sled. Uh, Miles has a Spidey-branded sled that kind of looks like a child's booster seat. Like, it looks like hollow plastic, kind of. It doesn't look like it's, uh, it could support the weight of uh, anybody over the age of four or five. Hulkling and Wiccan are using what looks like a two-seater pool float. And our little hero has uh, a pan of some sort. Maybe it's a garbage pail lid. I don't know. It's a pan. And so, they get to Shushin. Now, everything's going great until Jeff hits a bump and goes flying. And he lands headfirst in a heap of snow, looking kind of like Winnie the Pooh when he's stuck in the tree. Our little hero pulls himself out and scurries back to his pan, plate, whatever it is, only to find out that it's cracked. Well, he sadly watches the rest of his friends continuing their shushing down the hill. But then, inspiration strikes. Some time passes, and Jeff is back to sledding. Not only that, he's managed to beat all of his pals down the hill. And I hear you asking, just how in the world did he do that? Well, to answer that question would require us to take a scene shift. And we hop over to New York City, where Captain America is about to bust a bank robber. He goes to hurl his shield at the baddie, and, uh, well, it just clunks to the ground, because it's not his shield, it's actually... Jeff's busted pan, because you see, Jeff swapped it out for Captain America's shield, which is what he is now shushing down the hill with. And that's it. And you know, if you've been listening to these unlimited episodes, um, you'll know that I repeat myself a lot. I mean, if you listen to anything I do, you know I repeat myself a lot. So in order to avoid that, I'm going to be very, very quick with my thoughts on uh, the Jeff the Landshark story here. First, pure fun. Pure fun. Second... This has what X-Men Unlimited does not have, and that's heart. <laughs> this feels like a passion project is as short and as, as cute as it is. It feels, I don't know, it's got that, that nebulous quality of heart. And, uh, of course, my only complaint about this is I wish it were physical. And if it ever becomes physical, I will buy multiple copies. So, uh, yeah, that's all I'll say about Jeff, is I don't want to go into uh, a full-blown cheerleading rah-rah segment for the little land shark again. You guys know how I feel, so we'll just leave it at that, uh, and we will hop into the mailbag here. And uh, just like last time, uh, we don't usually do mailbags on Unlimited Day, but since uh, this isn't falling into the regular, you know, Sunday special sort of milieu here, I figure we'll make it just like a regular episode, huh? We're going to start with Evan, who's talking about Way of X number three, or Way of Sex number three. Hmm. Evan says, So I was wrong about Nightcrawler being fake drunk. That was legit. And it didn't even remind me of the early Dawn of X boozing because it actually made sense. He knows a big secret, but uh, there's no one he can trust with it. And Kurt's intoxicated POV stitches together everything that's come before at the gala before moving on to... The issue I thought was going to ruin Way of X for me. Here we go, free love, casual sex without consequence. Except that's not what we got. What we get is Stacy X challenging Nightcrawler's point of view, not because he's Catholic and that's bad, but because he's not seeing the full ramifications. I don't have to agree with every aspect presented to appreciate the intelligence and perspective and real-world parallels. And sex without consequences? That's definitely not what we get here. 
And yes, let's let's talk about this for a little bit here because, and I don't want to get ahead of ourselves here because you're going to raise some of these points in your message, but the way this information is presented to us, the way Spurrier delivers this information to us is almost perfect, right? Um, it, there's use of tact, there's subtlety, there's respect, which it's not something I'm used to in comics. Usually when... Uh, I mean, we can talk about old X-Men stories here, the Chuck Austin run, which uh, he tried to interject a lot of religious criticism into. And I mean, that ended with, like, priests using poisoned communion wafers. So, I mean, very, very little subtlety, very little tact, very little respect to those of us who might have faith. Because it is possible to get full off the lowest hanging fruit. But here, like you said, Stacey X's issue with Kurt... It's not about his his faith. It's more about his uh, level of disconnectiveness with the you know rank and file of Krakoa. Kurt's been described several times in this book as being one of the kind ones, right? Uh, probably the member of the Quiet Council that most of the rank and file would feel comfortable approaching. But he's still above them in rank, right? He's still part of the council. He's part of the government. He's part of the lawmaking uh, body. And he's actually the one who suggested make more mutants, right? And of course, we think about that as, uh, you know, a concept in and of itself. And it's like, well, sure, that makes perfect sense. We're trying to create a society or maintain a society. And it's a society that is, uh, I mean, how many times are they are they threatened with near extinction level events? <laughs> it seems like every few years, uh, mutants almost go extinct. So, yes, it stands to reason that you create as many new mutants as possible. But there are ramifications to that, and that's what Stacey X shined a light on here. Now back to Evan, he says, This book has a purpose, and it could feel very heavy-handed in fulfilling it. But instead, it feels natural, almost effortless, as the characters act naturally instead of being jammed in to force a predetermined cast to follow a rigid path. I'm sure Spurrier knows exactly what he's doing. He has to, but we don't see the seams of his work. Now, Lost is a new character, but she feels three-dimensional, not just a collection of needed story beats. And yes, totally, this uh, walks the line effortlessly between delivering, I mean, could we call it high concept what uh, Spurrier's doing? I I think in a way we can, right? And just like when we talk about Way of X, I talk about not so much the data we're getting, but the method of delivery that we're getting the data, where... I, and again, I may be projecting here, but I feel like with Hickman doing high concept, a lot of it is to show us how smart he is and make us feel smarter for having read it. Whereas Spurrier gives us information in a way that it actually teaches us, but in a way where we're not being talked down to. And yes, you feel smarter after you read it, but not because you trick yourself into believing you understand an abstract idea, but you actually have rooted knowledge in real societal concepts, if that makes any sense. I mean, Way of X has been eye-opening in more ways than one, but uh, the way that it respects the reader is um, is one that I didn't expect when we went into it, and it, it was a wonderful, wonderful surprise. And like I said, I'm going to miss this book, but I'm so happy that Spurrier is going to be sticking around with the new Legionnaire series. I'm, I'm looking forward to that already. Uh, Evan wraps up with, I got a bonus for you. Damien's theory about Mora manipulating Professor X and Magneto to push Mystique so far makes way too much sense. Mystique may not be a power player like Apocalypse and Sinister, but you underestimate her at your own peril. Somebody's got to want her sticking around, and somebody needs her to be angry. 
And yes, once again, I agree. I, I'm guessing we're going to get a lot of those answers in the coming uh, weeks and months here. But yeah, when you read a scene between Mystique, Xavier, and Magneto, it's uncomfortable because it's almost as though uh, Professor X and Magneto are being like outwardly aggressive toward her. Not even passive aggressive, not even kind of dismissive, but like they're trying to piss her off. And uh, there has to be a reason as to why they're doing that. And, uh, you know, it's one of those things I'm definitely looking forward to finding out. But thank you so much for writing in about Way of X and facilitating another opportunity for me to talk about Way of X because that's uh, one of my very favorite topics to talk about. Uh, next up, we're going to go to a letter from Peter McPherson from the Patreon page where he's going to talk a little bit about Namor the Submariner, who is the subject of X-Lapsed Point One over there, the exclusive program. You can hear the first episode of that uh, tacked on to the end of X-Lapsed episode 250 if you're interested. And Peter says the following... Namor was my first superhero. Namor, Marvel's first and mightiest mutant, issue three by the eternally sunshiny John Byrne, was the first comic I bought, most likely because the cover has Namor crashing into a boardroom on top of a spiky-tailed griffin. I stuck with the series as my monthly book through issue 25 when Jay Lee took over on art, at which point I couldn't tell who was who or what was going on, and I sadly dropped it with issue number 29. Yeah, the Jay Lee stuff was a little little scratchy, wasn't it? I remember not caring for that look at all. Um, it was, you know, different, of course. It was very, very different, but uh, not good different. At least to me at, uh, when was that, 1992-ish probably, 1993 maybe? So I was, you know, 11, 12, 13 years old, and uh, I just found it to be way too muddy, way too dark, and I wasn't reading Namor at the time, but uh, I remember seeing seeing those images in Wizard and seeing them on the racks and just kind of dismissing it, just uh, thumbing my nose at it. Like I said, it was different, but not a good different. Like, a good different to me would have been something like uh, Bill Sienkiewicz, which I wasn't a fan of when I was a kid, but it, it like, got under my skin, you know? It was one of those things that kind of stuck with me, and... Uh, even if I didn't care for it aesthetically, I could respect it for, I don't know, for just evoking a tone, you know, evo evoking a mood, evoking fear, instead of just looking messy. You know what I mean? And of course, I've grown to appreciate both Jay Lee and Bill Sienkiewicz, but, uh, you know, it's uh, you know, the eyes of a kid is quite different. Uh, Peter continues, I then switched over to Amazing Spider-Man after having already been buying it for the past few months. Then I saw the third issue of the original Carnage trilogy on a spinner rack and picked it up because Venom. And I think I've talked before about my feelings on the McFarlane, post-McFarlane Spider-Man, pre, like in between McFarlane and the Clone Saga uh, Spider-Man, where those books were hot because of McFarlane, even though he wasn't even on them anymore. But uh, those were books that just like, they wouldn't even make it to the racks at the little comic shop I went to. They would, uh, they would sell out immediately. So I think as a, you know, a butthurt kid, I automatically just did not want those books. I talked myself into not wanting them back in the day. Of course, I've since gone back and grabbed them. But uh, yeah, at the time, it was just like, no, nah, I don't need that in my life. Cause, simply because I couldn't get it, <laughs> you know. Um, now, Peter continues, I've got lessons from my backstory. One, art draws kids in and the writing keeps them. Absolutely, absolutely. If you're trying to attract kids, the art has to be a primary focus. Uh, we talk about, or I talk about, the turn of the century where 
everything kind of shift. You know, the, the industry had learned lessons about what happened in the 90s here, devoting all their attention to the hot artists of the day, not really paying quite as much mind to the stories as perhaps they could have and, and should have. But the worm turned a bit too far. You know, the pendulum swung a little too far where all we were worried about was the writing. And the art, while the art was still good, the focus kind of shifted. And of course, there are exceptions to this statement, but it shifted to be more tonally accurate with a more mature story. And like I can think about some of the, you know, Bendis Marvel work where we have like a Michael Lark, who's a, a wonderful artist, but... I don't think that art is going to necessarily draw a preteen into wanting to read uh, Daredevil. So yeah, the focus had shifted to trying to uh, woo an older audience. And of course, prices were going up as well, so you needed folks with more disposable income. I mean, things just beget themselves, I suppose. But back in the day, yeah, art, 100%. That's what got us in the door, uh, at least as, uh, as, you know, kids. Peter continues, Number two, I may have never gotten into comics if they were only in comic shops. As Amazing Spider-Man, Infinity Gauntlet number two, Dark Hawk number seven, Marvel Comics Presents number 89 were all purchases at other shops that would pique my interest in those characters and make me seek out a comic shop. Absolutely, we can't, uh, we can't minimize how important it was to have newsstand and, uh, you know, 7-Eleven racks. Uh, just having comics in more places than just the, uh, off-the-beaten-path comic shop, where, I mean, you're gonna go into a comic shop if you want comics. But, I mean, if you're at a pharmacy already and you see a comic, if you're in the grocery store and you see a comic, if you're getting a Slurpee at 7-Eleven and you see a comic, I mean, they're there, they're in your face. And, I mean, if you're drawn in and you fall in love with a character... I mean, that's that's the incentive you need. That's a gateway. Uh, Peter continues, Three, it never mattered to me if the number on the cover was a 1 or a 363. And yes, brother, you're going to make me cry. <laughs> because uh, when, I, when we all got into comics back in the day, we weren't just buying number 1s, you know? If we wanted Amazing Spider-Man, we weren't getting Amazing Spider-Man Volume 48 number 1. We were getting whatever comic was on the rack. I mean, my first Uncanny X-Men was in the 290s, where I knew there was a lot that I didn't know, and that didn't matter, because I found myself just falling in love with these characters, and I wanted to know more. I felt like it was worth my time, it was worth my effort, it was worth my money to learn more about these characters. So it didn't matter to me if they had no history, if they had 10 years history, 20, 30, 40 years history, I wanted to know more. And I wanted to put in the effort, so it didn't matter what issue we were on. It was a it was a different world. Certainly was a different world. A four. It helps to have support. Kids got friends, and they ain't got a lot of money in transport. Some of my friends like comics, and kept my interest going with theories, discoveries, and rankings. In addition to my allowance, my dad would buy my brother and I a monthly comic. If the price of a comic jumped from three to four to five dollars, then that might have been the end of that. That's another, you know, lost bit of comics history where, I mean, we could make, we could have theories, right? We could, I mean, we go right back to the old X-Men here. Who, who is Cable? Who is Cable, right? We don't know who he is. Is he actually the baby that Scott, Scott had sent to the future? Is he somebody else altogether? We had, who's the X-Trader? Where'd Gambit come from? We had all these, these theories, all of these things that we wanted to know more about, and we weren't, we weren't so far up the creator's behinds like we are now, where everything is kind of just out there, right? I think that's one of the things that's really making me excited about this, uh, this current year X-Men run, is that we actually have those questions again. 
We've got theories that we're making. We, we've got guesses, and we're, we're looking forward to discoveries, and we're connecting dots and following breadcrumbs. And it really reminds me of back in the day. Unfortunately, we are also in a very different time now, very technologically advanced, relatively speaking, where uh, people chase clout. And a lot of folks out there, rather than discussing comics, spoil them under the guise of discussing them. And uh, it kind of takes some of the fun out of it, doesn't it? Peter continues, Once I couldn't find Namor consistently at the grocery store, my dad started driving me to the comic shop 15 to 20 minutes away. That's where I saw all sorts of characters that I'd never heard of. And, you know, the first trip into a comic store is a magical experience. It's like a, something I wish we could bottle, because I don't think kids these days really really have that experience anymore. It's something that is a of a bygone era. I mean, I've talked time and time and time again that I would have never gone into a comic shop if I wasn't trying to track down ElfQuest back issues. They were a few years out of date. I knew they weren't going to be on a rack somewhere, so I had to go to a comic book store. And, you know, you go in there, and it's, you know, it's like overload. You know, you see so many things you've never seen before. You realize that there's more to comics than what you think there is. You know, uh, there's more to Marvel and DC than Superman, Batman, and Spider-Man. There's just so much out there. So much out there. Uh, Peter wraps up with, Wow, the Submariner memories really hit me fast as a torpedo. I was originally just going to post a single little sentence mentioning that since Namor's wings are usually viewed as pretty silly because they really are pretty silly, that I'm surprised a writer hasn't retconned them that they're actually fins helping him move fast in the water, yet able to be used as wings above sea level. Imperious Rex. Well, Peter, I could not be happier that you're talking about Namor led to this flood of memories here. I love these kind of stories. I love learning about people's fandom from the start. Because there's so much overlap between uh, folks of our vintage, you know. Uh, these are experiences that some younger fans and younger readers uh, may not have the way we did. And it's I love hearing these things. So thank you so much for writing in, and thank you so much for your support. And now speaking of support, let's hop into Shoutout City here, where I thank the folks who engaged with my social media stuffs and helped to raise the profile of this little program. Over on Twitter, I want to thank Ed Moore, Walt Neeland, Wayne Burroughs, The Long Box of Darkness, Jeremiah, Chris Bailey, The 21st Century Boys, Dave Schultz, Jason Colby, Joe Crawford, and Billy D. Over on Facebook, I want to thank Jesse D. Young, Jeremiah, Billy D., Pat Sampson, Andrew Franklin, and Walt Neeland. And I think I'm, I'm kind of hemming and hawing here. I might, I might try doing Instagram again. Uh, that's, <laughs> it's iffy. So um, I guess be prepared for me to say I'd like to thank no one on Instagram because nobody ever, <laughs> ever uh, engages with my stuff there. But uh, we will play it by ear, and as always, we will hope for the best. Now, since this is the first X-Lapsed episode of the week, we do have a This Week in X segment. Unfortunately, we still don't have anything for X-Men Unlimited, at least not of at the time of this recording. I don't know what's... Uh, I guess this episode's going to be out on Tuesday, so I don't know what came out yesterday. So by now you know what came out, even before I do. So hopefully Marvel will get their stuff together soon enough and start updating that page again so I have something to say about it. Uh, on shelves, we do have some stuff here. We've got Excalibur number 24, all three covers of it. Hellions number 16, all three covers of that. And New Mutants number 22, only two covers there. So, huh, and that's... And I think that's the one of these three books that isn't getting canceled, so that's odd. 
Uh, Deadpool, Black, White, and Blood, number three of four, for completionist's sake. Three covers there. And finally, uh, something a little strange here. A uh, Marvel's Xavier Institute novel called Triptych by Jalay Johnson, which features Phantom X. And we do have a blurb here. Former super soldier and master thief Phantom X stumbles upon one of his clones, Cluster, which is a disgusting name, stealing priceless artifacts from the Louvre. Outwitted and intrigued, Phantom X decides to beat Cluster at whatever game she's playing. But something is different about these artifacts. They've all been infused with nanotechnology, very similar to that that originally created Phantom X. And they aren't the only ones looking for them. Their other clone, Weapon 13, is on the hunt, too. What happens is cat-and-mouse fun robbing museums around the world turns into a journey of self-discovery as the trio uncover a far deadlier game. So I I won't be reading that, but uh, for folks out there who enjoy, you know, books without pictures in it, hey, you could probably do worse than uh, Triptych. That's it for the Week in X, uh, but before we get out of here, I would like to thank my lovely patrons. So thank you to Andrew Franklin, Ed Moore, Walt Neeland, Jeremiah, Jason Colby, The Scary Stuff Podcast, Jesse DeYoung, Damian, and Peter McPherson. You're all the best, and your support means the world to me. And now, as I feel my throat closing up from allergies, uh, let's get into the uh, contact information here uh, to close out. Uh, You can find me several different ways if you'd like to get a hold of me. Uh, First, on Twitter, I'm at Ace Comics. You can also shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can call into the X-Lapsed voicemail hotline at 623-396-JERK. For blog posts and show notes, you can head over to chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You can also join us on Facebook. Our little group is 90s X-Men. And, of course, for the complete audio archives, including some new programs that are coming to the uh, main feed, you can head over to chrisandreggie.podbean.com, and you can find that anywhere you find noise. Finally, there is, of course, the Patreon. That is patreon.com slash xlapsed. Uh, oodles of exclusives over there, and uh, it is still a work in progress, so I'm still uh, playing it by ear. So if anybody has any suggestions, your humble host is all ears. But uh, that's going to do it for today. I would like to thank you all so much for spending some time with me today. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya. See ya.